we are living in really strange times. I mean, it has been an unprecedented year. I agree with those who have already predicted that we will define the rest of our lives by 2020. We will talk about those things that came before 2020, and we will reflect on everything that happened after 2020, and that will be something that we do for the rest of our lives. I read of a new product by the makers of NyQuil, the cold and sleep remedy, and the new product is called YearQuil. You take two tablets and you sleep until 2021. And if you're like me, some days this year you have felt that way. Just wake me up when it's finally over. Well, one of the things that history will record is 2020 has been an age of outrage. We are living in a time of extreme anger and rage. And anger is like a contagious virus. One person's anger triggers another person's anger. And we are seeing that in our culture and even in ourselves right now. Anger is like the smoke detector in your home going off. Whoa! When the smoke detector in our home goes off, the problem isn't the smoke detector. But the smoke detector signals there's another problem that needs our attention. And anger has often been called the second emotion because it is like the smoke detector going off. It is signaling another problem. At the root of almost all anger is one of three primary emotions, hurt, frustration, or fear. When you get angry, ask yourself why you are angry, and it will almost always point back to hurt, frustration, or fear. And it should be no surprise that this is an age of outrage and anger because when you look at everything that has turned 2020 upside down, you will see that we are all filled with hurt, frustration, and fear, which expresses itself in anger and outrage. And this outrage around us isn't good for our souls. It isn't good for the people around us. It isn't good for the people that we love, and it's not good for our country or our world. And I have been hugely burdened as I see social media posts and observe the scorn for whichever politician people disagree with and the language being used by activists on every side of the racial divide or the insults being thrown at people who simply have a different viewpoint on wearing a mask. When I see these things, I have a burden that this anger in our culture, that this anger has turned to hate. And one of the things that seems to be different, or at least more out in the open right now, is how much people hate each other. And it seems that people are okay with hate and outrage. And frankly, it scares me. It scares me. And do you know what scares me most? When I see that hate creeping up in me. Because, unfortunately, we who are followers of Jesus are not immune from it. 
It seems Satan is using election years and a global pandemic and unresolved racial issues to divide us and to intensify the hate. And clearly, this is not what God wants. So what do we do? How do we as individual followers of Jesus overcome this anger that is so much a part of our world, the world that we live in right now? We have to figure that out because the Bible tells us very, very clearly in James chapter 1, if you are angry, you cannot do any of the good things that God wants done. This passage isn't talking about uh, our angry world. It is saying my personal anger will keep me from doing any of the good things that God wants me to do. And I don't know about you, but I want to do the good that God wants me to do. I want to do what he wants me to do. And so I guess it's important to know what are those things? What are those things? What are the good things that God wants us to do? And I'm really glad to tell you today that we don't have to guess about those things. Our theme verse for this series says, the Lord God has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. For the next three weeks, we will use this verse to explore what it means to follow Jesus and to have as a priority doing these things that God demands of each individual who claims to follow Jesus. We will use the three specific priorities of God as our outline and our titles for each message. Today, we will talk about seeing that justice is done and promoting God's priority of justice for all people. Next week, we will talk about letting mercy be our first concern, and we will discuss how we can hear each other uh, without defensiveness and care about each other's hurts and frustrations and fears, those things that lead to anger. And the final week, we'll talk about humbly obeying God, how we truly become change agents who promote peace in an age of outrage by doing all three of those things that are required of us, that God demands of us. I also need to tell you that this may be the most prayed over series we have ever done here at Impact because we know that we're going to hit some topics that are in the news and topics that will be sensitive to some. I've had discussions with our church leaders, our elders, and our pastors, and our program directors to be sure that we're on the same page, that we're hearing God's leading in a unified voice. And I am overwhelmed to tell you that we are. We have talked through a series uh, that will touch on racial division and God's heart for justice and healing. And our leadership is in agreement. As followers of Jesus, we need to discuss these things. But we also talked about the fact that we're concerned that people will misunderstand what we're saying, that some will equate this discussion with politics and will shut down and not hear what we're saying because our news is full every day of people motivated by their own political agendas trying to manipulate and leverage these things to further their cause. And I want to assure you again, we have no political agenda in this series because we believe that these issues are not political 
they're personal. And we believe that the solution that we need won't be a political solution, but a spiritual one. The peace that we are seeking will come from gaining the heart of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And instead of promoting or defending a political viewpoint, we want to hear the heart of God because over and over, the Bible speaks to these issues. God cares about justice for the overlooked and oppressed. Jesus came to break down walls that divide us. So can I ask you to make some commitments as we start this series together? Here's what I'm asking. First, please commit to hearing all three of these messages. We will really need uh, to have you take all of these messages together to get the full aspect of what we're trying to see from Scripture. Then would you pray and ask God's help uh, and ask him to help you hear his heart in this. Push back the temptation to fall into the narratives uh, that uh, being spun around you by the media and ask God to help you really hear his voice and his perspective. And then... See this as a beginning of the conversation, not the total conversation. If I stick to my time, which I don't always do, I will have about 75 minutes in these messages. There's no way that that will be enough time for this entire conversation on these topics. So this is just the start of a journey of understanding. And then we want you to join the conversation. We want to hear your thoughts and your questions and your stories as we go through this. Please email your feedback to me. You can email me at steve at impactpittsburgh.com. And we're planning a couple of meetings after Thanksgiving where we can continue the dialogue by responding to the feedback or questions that we hear most often during this series. Also, we're planning some growth groups and events in the coming months and years that will help those who want to explore these topics even more to meet together and listen and dialogue together. Lastly, can I ask you, can I ask that we choose to reflect Christ by being kind? Certainly, we will have some disagreement or different perspectives on things. And some will think that we have gone way too far in what we say. And others will feel like we haven't gone far enough. But can we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we disagree? Can we avoid questioning motives and try to uh, believe and trust people's hearts in this? Again, our chief concern is that what we say will be heard, that what we speak from Scripture will be heard. And I'm human, so I may not always choose exactly the right words, but uh, I like what one of our elders said in our meeting when we were discussing this and discussing what we would say. He said that he was paraphrasing something that he thought he had read or heard, but he said, it is better for us to be clumsy at this than to be silent about this. And I agree with that. So with only a short time left, let's look at that passage from Micah 6.8 again. Here's what it says. The Lord God has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. 
So if we want to pursue and promote peace in an age of outrage, we need to be looking at the things on God's list of what he says is right and what he demands of us. And the first thing that he lists is he says that we should see that justice is done. This tells me something very clearly. It tells me God cares about justice. God cares about justice. I said I wanted you to hear God's heart on this, so let me share, without much comment or commentary, several scriptures that reflect God's heart. I think you will see that this is a common theme. From Psalms 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. From Psalm 11, the Lord does what is right, and he loves justice, so honest people will see his face. From Psalm 10, Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will hear their cries and comfort them. You will bring justice to the orphans and, and the oppressed, so mere people can no longer terrify them. And then from Psalm 82, give justice to the poor and the orphan, Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. And then we read from Isaiah chapter 1. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. We have just read, without much comment, five scriptures that point out how much God cares about justice. Justice is the foundation of the throne of his kingdom. He loves justice. God gives justice to oppressed people, and he wants his followers to seek justice and spread it and to stand up for people who are oppressed and marginalized. And if we aren't becoming like God by being people of justice, it taints our worship of God. Look at these scriptures. In talking about a day of fasting that his people celebrated, he said this in Isaiah 58. I will tell you what kind of day I want. A day to set people free. I want a day that you take the burdens of others. I want a day when you set troubled people free and you take the burdens from their shoulders. I want you to share your food with the hungry. I want you to find the poor who don't have homes and bring them into your own homes. When you see people who have no clothes, give them your clothes. Don't hide from your relatives when they need help. If you do these things, your light will begin to shine like the light of dawn. Then your wounds will heal. Your goodness will walk in front of you and the glory of the Lord will come following behind you. In another place, he says this. The Lord says, I hate and reject your feasts. I cannot stand your religious meetings. If you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. You bring your best fellowship offerings, a fattened calf, but I will ignore them. Take the noise of your songs away from me. I won't listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like a river. And let goodness flow like a never-ending stream. And then Jesus said this. 
How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You are hypocrites. You give to God one-tenth of everything uh, you earn, even your mint and dill and cumin, but you don't obey the really important teachings of the law, justice, mercy, and being loyal. These are things you should do as well as those other things. And then Jesus' brother James wrote this, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Again, I haven't commented much in this section because I wanted you to hear the heart of God from the word of God. Clearly, God cares about justice for the oppressed. And we who know God have to reflect his heart of justice. In fact, he wants us to, br to brag about this part of who he is. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 9. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me. And understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. So clearly the Bible tells us that God cares about justice. Another thing the Bible clearly tells us is Jesus wants to break down walls. Jesus wants to break down walls. In writing about one of the racist uh, division, uh, racial divisions of his time, the Apostle Paul told us this about Jesus. Look at what it says in Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. One of the main reasons Jesus came to earth was to destroy the wall of hostility, was to tear down the walls that we have built that divide us as people. And in Galatians 3, he declares that uh, this was something that was important. Look at what it says in verse 28 of Galatians 3. Faith in Christ Jesus is what makes each of you equal with each other, whether you are a Jew or a Greek, that's the wall of uh, racial bias, a slave or a free person, that's the wall of economic or social bias, a man or a woman, that's the wall of gender bias. Jesus came to tear down the dividing walls, and yet it seems we still have them. We continue to build up some of those walls. We build them higher and higher, and we even have built 
new walls around our political opinions and around different Christian viewpoints. Please hear me clearly. Whatever attitude, opinion, or idea divides us or separates us or makes us suspicious of each other is not something that pleases God. It is a wall that Jesus died on the cross to tear down. So we're almost out of time. Let me finish by trying to answer the question, how can I see that justice is done? Let me give you several thoughts, and I'll return to some of these ideas in future messages. But to see that justice is done, first of all, I have to see justice. I have to see injustice, I'm sorry. I have to see injustice. Some today don't seem to believe that there is any injustice or racism in our society. Now, most of us believe we are not racists, and therefore, we don't think that racism is a big problem, but it is, in some big ways and some small ways. I want you to watch the first part of this TED Talk and uh, hear this woman describe her experiences. Watch this video. So it's 2006. My friend Harold Ford calls me. He's running for U.S. Senate in Tennessee. And he says, Melody, I desperately need some national press. Do you have any ideas? So I had an idea. I called a friend who was in New York at one of the most successful media companies in the world, and she said, why don't we host an editorial board lunch for Harold? You come with him. Harold and I arrive in New York. We are in our best suits. We look like shiny new pennies. And we get to the receptionist and we say, we're here for the lunch. She motions for us to follow her. We walk through a series of corridors, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a stark room, at which point she looks at us and she says, where are your uniforms? <laughs> Just as this happens, my friend rushes in. The blood drains from her face. There are literally no words, right? And I look at her and I say, now, don't you think we need more than one black person in the U.S. Senate? Now, Harold and I, We still laugh about that story. And in many ways, the moment caught me off guard. But deep, deep down inside, I actually wasn't surprised. And I wasn't surprised because of something my mother taught me about 30 years before. You see, my mother was ruthlessly realistic. I remember one day coming home from a birthday party where I was the only black kid invited. And instead of asking me the normal motherly questions like, did you have fun or how was the cake? My mother looked at me and she said, how did they treat you? I was seven. I did not understand. I mean, why would anyone treat me differently? But she knew. And she looked me right in the eye and she said, they will not always treat you well. Now, race is one of those topics in America that makes people extraordinarily uncomfortable. You bring it up at a dinner party or in a workplace environment, it is literally the conversational equivalent of touching the third rail. There is shock, followed by a long silence. 
And even coming here today, I told some friends and colleagues that I plan to talk about race, and they warned me. They told me, "Don't do it. There'd be huge risks." In me talking about this topic, that people might think I'm a militant black woman and I would ruin my career, and I have to tell you, I actually for a moment was a bit afraid. Then I realized, the first step to solving any problem is to not hide from it, and the first step to any form of action is awareness. And so I decided to actually talk about race. And I decided that if I came here and shared with you some of my experiences, that maybe we could all be a little less anxious and a little more bold in our conversations about race. Now, I know there are people out there who will say that the election of Barack Obama meant that it was the end of racial discrimination for all eternity, right? But I work in the investment business, and we have a saying: the numbers do not lie. And here, there are significant. Quantifiable racial disparities that cannot be ignored in household wealth, household income, job opportunities, healthcare. One example from corporate America: even though white men make up just 30 percent of the U.S. population, they hold 70 percent of all corporate board seats. Of the Fortune 250, there are only seven CEOs that are minorities. And of the thousands of publicly traded companies today, thousands, only two are chaired by black women, and you're looking at one of them, the same one who not too long ago was nearly mistaken for kitchen help. So that is a fact. Now, I have this thought experience that I play with myself, experiment, when I say, imagine if I walked you into a room, and it was of a major corporation like Exxon Mobil, and every single person around the boardroom were black. You would think that were weird, but if I walked you into a Fortune 500 company and every around the table is a white male, when will it be that we think that's weird too? And I know how we got here. I know how we got here. You know, there was institutionalized and one time legalized discrimination in our country. There's no question about it. But I still, as I sort of grapple with this issue, my mother's question hangs in the air for me: How did they treat you? Now, I do not raise this issue to complain or in any way elicit any kind of sympathy. I have succeeded in my life beyond my wildest expectations, and I've been treated well by people of all races more often than I have not. I tell the uniform story because it happened. I cite those statistics around corporate board diversity because they are real, and I stand here today talking about this issue of racial discrimination because I believe it threatens to rob another generation of all the opportunities that all of us want for all of our children, no matter what their color or where they come from, and I think it also threatens to hold back businesses. You see, researchers have coined this term "color blindness." To describe a learned behavior where we pretend that we don't notice race. If you happen to be surrounded by a bunch of people who look like you, that's purely accidental. Now, color blindness, in my view, doesn't mean that there's no racial discrimination and there's fairness. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't ensure it. In my view, color blindness is very dangerous because it means we're ignoring the problem. There was a corporate study that said that instead of avoiding race. The really smart corporations actually deal with it head-on. They actually recognize that embracing diversity means 
recognizing all races, including the majority one. But I'll be the first one to tell you, this subject matter can be hard, awkward, uncomfortable. But that's kind of the point. In the spirit of debunking racial stereotypes, the one that black people don't like to swim, I'm going to tell you how much I love to swim. I love to swim so much that as an adult, I swim with a coach. And one day, my coach had me do a drill where I had to swim to one end of a 25-meter pool without taking a breath. And every single time I failed, I had to start over, and I failed a lot. By the end, I got it, but I got out of the pool. I was exasperated and tired and annoyed, and I said, "Why are we doing breath-holding exercises?" And my coach looked at me and he said, "Melody, that was not a breath-holding exercise. That drill was to make you comfortable being uncomfortable, because that's how most of us spend our days. If we can learn to deal with our discomfort and just relax into it, we'll have a better life." So I think it's time for us to be comfortable with the uncomfortable conversation about race. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, all of us. If we truly believe in equal rights and equal opportunity in America, I think we have to have real conversations about this issue. We cannot afford to be colorblind. We have to be color brave. We have to be willing, as Teachers and parents and entrepreneurs and scientists—we have to be willing to have proactive conversations about race, with honesty and understanding and courage. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the smart thing to do. Because our businesses and our products and our science, our research—all of that will be better with greater diversity. Now, my favorite example of color bravery is a guy named John Skipper. He runs ESPN. He's a North Carolina native, quintessential Southern gentleman, white. He joined ESPN, which already had a culture of inclusion and diversity, but he took it up a notch. He demanded that every open position have a diverse slate of candidates. Now he says the senior people in the beginning bristled, and they would come to him and say, "Do you want me to hire the minority, or do you want me to hire the best person for the job?" And Skipper says his answers were always always the same, yes. And by saying yes to diversity, I honestly believe that ESPN is the most valuable cable franchise in the world. I think that's a part of the secret sauce. Now I can tell you in my own industry, at Ariel Investments, we actually view our diversity as a competitive advantage, and that advantage can extend way beyond business. There's a guy named Scott Page at the University of Michigan. He's the first person to develop a mathematical calculation for diversity. He says if you're trying to solve a really hard problem, really hard, that you should have a diverse group of people, including those with diverse intellects. The example that he gives is the smallpox epidemic. When it was ravaging Europe, they brought together all these scientists and they were stumped. And the beginnings of the cure to the disease. Came from the most unlikely source, a dairy farmer, a dairy farmer who noticed that the milkmaids were not getting smallpox, and the smallpox vaccination is bovine-based because of that dairy farmer. Now I said, I'm sure you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't run a cable company, I don't run an investment firm, I am not a dairy farmer. What can I do? And I'm telling you, you can be color brave. If you're a part of a hiring process or an admissions process, you can be color brave. If you are trying to solve a really hard problem, 
you can speak up and be color brave. Now, I know people will say, but that doesn't add up to a lot. But I'm actually asking you to do something really simple: observe your environment, at work, at school, at home. I'm asking you to look at the people around you. Purposefully and intentionally invite people into your life who don't look like you, don't think like you, don't act like you, don't come from where you come from, and you might find that they will challenge your assumptions and make you grow as a person. You might get powerful new insights from these individuals, or, like my husband who happens to be white, you might learn that black people—men, women, children—we use body lotion every single day. Now. I also think that this is very important, so that the next generation really understands that this progress will help them, because they're expecting us to be great role models. Now, I told you, my mother, she was ruthlessly realistic. She was an unbelievable role model. She was the kind of person who got to be the way she was because she was a single mom with six kids in Chicago. She was in the real estate business, where she worked extraordinarily hard, but oftentimes had a hard time making ends meet. And that meant sometimes we got our phone disconnected, or our lights turned off, or we got evicted. And we got evicted. Sometimes we lived in these small apartments that she owned, sometimes in only one or two rooms because they weren't completed. And we would heat our bath water on hot plates. But she never gave up hope, ever. And she never allowed us to give up hope either. This brutal pragmatism that she had—I mean, I was four, and she told me, "Mommy is Santa." I was. She was this brutal pragmatism. She taught me so many lessons, but the most important lesson was that every single day she told me, "Melody, you can be anything, anything." And because of those words, I would wake up at the crack of dawn, and because of those words, I would love school more than anything. And because of those words, when I was on a bus going to school. I dreamed the biggest dreams, and it's because of those words that I stand here right now, full of passion, asking you to be brave for the kids who are dreaming those dreams today. You see, I want them to look at a CEO on television and say, "I can be like her," or "He looks like me," and I want them to know. That anything is possible. That they can achieve the highest level that they ever imagine. That they will be welcome in any corporate boardroom, or they can lead any company. You see this idea of being the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's woven into the fabric of America. America, when we have a challenge, we take it head on. We don't shrink away from it. We take a stand. We show courage. So right now, what I'm asking you to do, I'm asking you to show courage. I'm asking you to be bold. As business leaders, I'm asking you not to leave anything on the table. As citizens, I'm asking you not to leave any child behind. I'm asking you not to be colorblind, but to be color brave, so that every child knows that their future matters and their dreams are possible. Thank you. Thank you. Now, remember, I said this topic isn't political; it's personal. 
Well, hearing this woman's story helps me see that she has experienced some things that I never have and never will. That she has experienced some injustice and oppression that haven't been a part of my life. Friends, if you look for it online, you will find hundreds of videos telling you this type of story. The first step is for me to open my eyes and see the injustice that surrounds me. Secondly, I have to do more than talk. I have to do more than talk. I have to listen. I have uh, to open a dialogue with people who are different than me. I need to listen to the hurts and frustrations and fears of my friends of color. And I need to listen to the hurt and the frustration and the fears of my law enforcement friends. May God forgive us for talking about this issue and proclaiming what we think is true without ever listening to people who might have experienced injustice and hate in different ways. Now, this is part of what we're doing in this series. We're trying to open an ongoing dialogue where we can learn and understand why others feel as they do and also share with them our feelings and our experiences. Lastly, I want you to take responsibility. I, I have to take responsibility. Did you notice that the passage doesn't just say that we need to understand justice and that we need to learn about injustice? It says we need to see that justice is done. Or in a more common translation, we need to do justice. And again, we'll talk more about what this means in the coming weeks and in the groups that will take place in coming months and years, but we have to take responsibility. We're out of time for today, but please be sure to join us for all three of these messages. And I invite you to send your stories and your feedback so that we can respond to your concerns and to your questions and so that we can hear uh, your heart. I'm praying that as a result of this series, we don't just say, wow, I learned a lot in those messages. I pray that this series will be a defining moment for us and for our church, that each of us as individuals will take personal responsibility to see that justice is done around us, to help the oppressed and the hurting, to defend those who are marginalized and pushed aside. While preparing this series, I came across a Franciscan blessing or benediction, and the words spoke to my heart, and uh, uh, they were an encouragement of what I want and what I should be praying for seeking and desiring in my own life. And I so much want to follow God's heart. I so much want to do what he demands. I want to see that justice is done. I want to let mercy be my first concern. And I want to humbly obey God. I'd like to close by praying this Franciscan blessing over each of you in our church as we conclude this message. Let's pray together. May God bless you with a restless discomfort about easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may seek truth boldly 
and love deep within your heart. May God bless you with holy anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may tirelessly work for justice, freedom, and peace among all people. And may God bless you with the gift of tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, or the loss of all that they cherish so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and transform their pain into joy. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you really can make a difference in this world so that you are able, with God's grace, to do what others claim cannot be done. Heavenly Father, we are listening to your heart. Now, Father, would you help us to allow you to transform our hearts, to renew our minds, so that we can become like Jesus, so that we can become people who see that justice is done. Father, give us peace today in this time of outrage. In Jesus' name, amen.